Thanks for joining us on Beyond the Sermon, the podcast of First Methodist Church in Collingswood, New Jersey. On this podcast, the goal is not just to share our sermons, but to go beyond the sermon and talk about what we're learning and what God is doing in us and in our community. The sermon you're about to listen to comes from our summer 2023 sermon series, Living Stones. In this series, we're looking at who Jesus is calling us to be as he builds us into a spiritual home. You can find more information about our church at fumccollingswood.org. Thanks for listening. So, as I had everything ready for this morning, it was yesterday, I guess it was, I was talking to my wife and I was saying, I don't have really, really good, like, I feel like every sermon or something needs to start with a good joke, and I really couldn't find one that was relevant to living stones or relevant to what we're going to be talking about today. And she's like, just say the one you heard in the show last night. So my son was in a show, and there's a little bit about dad jokes. So I'm going to tell a dad joke right now. What did the ocean say to the shore? Nothing, it just waved. Oh, yeah, you can groan. I told you it was a dad joke. Yeah, well, that's just to lighten the mood a little bit before we dive in. And we're going to be diving into Ezra chapter 3 today. But before I actually really dove into this scripture, I didn't know much about Ezra. So I want to give you a little bit of a history because I needed a history lesson myself. So maybe you do too. So we're talking about the temple, the great temple that David started and Solomon completed, right? The temple in Jerusalem, which was built at around 966 BC. And about 30 years later, after the death of Solomon, Israel was divided into two sections. There was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. They were also referred to as Israel and Judah. And we're just actually talking about this in our Sunday school class this morning, which I was just like, oh, that's really cool. Um, Then for 400 years or so, these kingdoms were alternately blessed and persecuted based on how well they basically were obedient to God, right? Um, And then in about 586 BC, the southern kingdom and Jerusalem were defeated by the Babylonians. So they were then taken from Jerusalem, they were taken captive, transported to Babylon, And they were basically served as slaves there for about 50 years until finally the Persians defeated the Babylonians. And that was in about 538 BC. And that's where Ezra 1 picks up. So in the first chapter of Ezra, we meet Cyrus, who's the king of of Persia. Um, And he's very... um, He's very nice to these captives. He actually hears from God, and he is told by God to allow these these slaves that were taken from Jerusalem many years ago, return to Jerusalem, he says, rebuild your temple. So everyone is very excited about that. Not only does he do that, but he also gives them back all of the artifacts that were taken by the Babylonians from the temple and brought to Babylon. He says, take them, bring them back to the temple, restore the temple, rebuild the temple. So that's Ezra 1. Ezra 2 basically just goes through a list of name after name after name after name of all the people who actually went back to Jerusalem. 
And I'm not going to go through all those names, but at the end, verse like 64 to 66, that's how many verses there are of names, right? I just want to give you an idea. There were a total of over 42,000 people that went, not including over 7,000 servants, 200 singers, which I thought was very interesting, over 700 horses, over 200 mules, over 400 camels, and over 6,000 donkeys. So... I don't know about you, but I tried to picture that. That is one heck of a caravan, right? All of these people going back to Jerusalem. So that's where we start now. Here we are in Ezra 3. And Ezra 3 is divided into two different sections. The first section, 1 through 6, is rebuilding the altar. And 7 through 13 is rebuilding the temple. So we're going to start Ezra 3... I'm going to start reading, and we're going to read through this chapter as we go through this teaching. So verse 1 and 2 says, When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Then, let me just put a caveat in here. I'm not a preacher by trade. I will botch a lot of these names. Don't really want to hear about it later. It's okay. (laughs) Then, Joshua son, uh, Joshua, son of Josadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, uh, son of Shealtiel, and his associates, began to build the altar of God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it, in accordance to what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So I read that, and I thought to myself, <clears throat> they began to build the altar of God. And I've never actually really thought to myself, I have, I have pictures in my mind of maybe what an altar might look like, but have you ever wondered what that particular altar might have looked like, or maybe any altar that you read about in Scripture might look like? Well, in my study Bible online, there was a graphic of a whole slew of different types of altars, and I'm going to show it to you right now. And it's really interesting, the thing I took about from this is there are so many different kinds of altars that could be used. It could be as simple as, it literally says there, any stone could be used as an altar. And if we go all the way up at the top, there's a solid bronze altar that I estimate to be maybe 50 by 50 feet. It's huge. And that, by the way, is the one that they um, approximate might have been in the actual original temple in all its glory. But, oh, and the altar that we're talking about today, they think was probably the one marked unworked stones, right? So they were unhewn, unworked stones that were built, and it had um, a hearthstone slab on it. So anyway, all of this to say that there's a lot of different types of altars that were used, right? So here we are. Let's move on to verse 3. Despite their fear of the people around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both in the morning and evening sacrifices. So I was wondering, it says, despite their fear of the peoples around them. And I started thinking, why would they fear anyone around them? But then I thought, well, Obviously, they've been gone for a while. There's people around the area that are living there. Think about it. You're living in your town, nothing exciting going on. All of a sudden, close to 10,000 people and animals come marching into town, and they're ready to build something big. 
And I immediately went, if you're from this area, I immediately went to Route 70, which has been under construction for about a year now, and it doesn't look like it's going to end anytime soon, and it is a pain in my butt, and I don't like it. And I thought, well, yeah, there's probably people around that didn't want them coming in and messing up their life. But it says that despite their fear of those people, they started building the altar, and they did that first, I believe, so that they had a place to meet with God and receive God's protection. So moving on, verse 4 to 6. Then in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the festival of tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed each day. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred festivals of the Lord, as well as those brought as free will offerings to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, through the, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. And the one thing this said to me was that they were obedient right? They went there to rebuild the temple. Seven months in, they hadn't done that yet. They were offering sacrifices to the Lord on the altar that they chose to build first. They didn't say, well, we have a lot of work to do, and the work is all for God. We're rebuilding his temple, right? So we're just going to get started on it. We don't have to do the sacrifices and the new moon sacrifice and all the other festivals and sacrifices they have to do to honor those festivals. They were all required by law, by God's law. But they didn't say, we probably don't have to do that because we're doing God's work here, right? No, they didn't do that. They built the altar first. And then they used it for a long time before they even started laying the foundation of the temple. So, now we're moving into verse 7 here, rebuilding the temple. And we're going to get back to a lot of this. I just want to get through and make sure we understand the scripture here. Verse 7 says, Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters and gave food and drink and olive oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre so that they would bring cedar logs by the sea from Lebanon to Joppa as authorized by King Cyrus of Persia. And I'm not going to read verses 8 and 9 because, frankly, it's just a lot more names that I can't pronounce that well. But I will say that a good summary for our purposes here is that they finally started to pay for some skilled laborers and supplies, and they started the organizational process of actually laying the foundation for the temple and rebuilding the temple. So now we're going to finish out verses 10 to 13. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord and the the priests in their vestments and with trumpets and the Levites, sons of Asaph, with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, he is good, his love towards Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping 
because the people made such, so much noise, and the sound was heard far away. Now this passage celebrate, uh, starts out with a big celebration, right? The foundation was finally being laid for the temple. There was still a lot of work to be done, but it had started, right? And it was going to take a long time. It actually took them close to 40 years because of a lot of other things that went on, if you read further in Ezra. But what I found interesting here was it specifically mentions some older men who were present who had seen the first temple who were weeping. I thought to myself, this could be weeping for joy. It could be. But I think many of them were probably weeping because the foundation that they saw being laid was nothing like the original foundation of the temple. It was laid at the original site and they were using a lot of the original there, but the materials that were being used were different. They knew they didn't have the same resources as David and Solomon did. They knew that this temple was going to look way different than the original one that they remember. And that made them sad. And I thought, I know that many of us here remember when this church was quite literally, some of us can remember when this was literally one of the most biggest and influential churches on the East Coast, because it was. Sunday school attendance alone was over 900 people in this very room. I personally remember performing in shows, actually we couldn't call them shows, we had to call them productions because shows was somehow showy or whatever. But I remember performing in productions that would easily, we would do four different nights of the production, every night 400 people in the sanctuary. It It was truly amazing. There's a lot of history of influencing people for God's kingdom in this church just like there was a lot of history in the original temple. None of us knows what's gonna happen in the next year or two with regards to this particular church building. And I would venture to say that if we had to move out of this building and hold services in a different place, there would be both celebration, because it's a new beginning, like there would be a reason to celebrate, but there would also be some weeping for what we remember about this building. Perhaps there's already been some weeping about the obvious decline from where we might have been, our influential decline here. Not that we don't have it still, but it's different now. And maybe there's some some weeping over that over the past decades. I mean, case in point, our air conditioning doesn't work right now. We're working to fix it, but we have to meet here. We can't meet in our sanctuary this summer. I just want to encourage that no matter where God is leading us as a church body, we need to put, and here's the title of the sermon, first things first. We need to start where they did in Ezra 3. And what did they do? They started by building the altar. So if we're going to start by building the altar, we have to ask ourselves, what is an altar for? There's a lot of different different definitions of altar out there. I actually tried to look up the definition and I couldn't find one that just was common with each other. But 
I want to put out a definition that I hope we can all agree on, that an altar is where God and man can meet. Now, in the Old Testament, they sacrificed burnt offerings, and in return, God would accept those offerings, and his presence would be there in the temple at the altar. Now, it could look different in many ways we saw in the picture, right? It, didn't, it looked very, very different depending upon what altar you're looking at. It wasn't a clean or a sterile place, right? It was a place of pain, a place of sacrifice and death. But what really mattered with an altar was what was brought to that altar. So since Jesus became our sacrificial lamb and died in our place, we don't actually have to offer those burnt offerings to God at an altar anymore. It's a really good thing. But then what does our altar look like? Well, I mean, some might say, well, it's where we serve communion. There's an altar table. We serve communion at an altar table. Well, true. Some might say it's where Christians, uh, couples come to get married, come to the altar, right? Um, maybe you even think it's you know, the rail that we kneel at in front of the church out in the sanctuary. And those are all true, I suppose. But I was trying to figure out what truly is our own personal altar. And while I was trying to think of this, and I, I was racking my brain and nothing was coming to me, and it seems so obvious once I already know it, but I did something very smart to figure it out. Anyone want to guess what I did? Prayed? Okay, well, that, it's funny. If I prayed, I probably would have come up with it on my own, but no, I didn't. Any married men want to guess what I did? I talked to my wife, that's right, I talked to my wife, and I am grateful to have a wife who was very wise, has a lot of discernment, and can offer a lot of clarity to me, and she, it was so funny, because she kind of brought me to it, she knew it right away, but our personal altar where we can go to meet God personally is simply prayer, Right? Now, we can hear from God in a lot of ways. We can hear from him in scripture. We can hear from him in wise counsel from other people, such as our wives. <laughs> we can hear from him in a lot of ways. But prayer is where things get really personal between us and God. So just like the altar of the Old Testament, our personal altar of prayer isn't, or I might put out, shouldn't be a sterile place. If it is, I would encourage you to maybe... Shift things up a little bit. In addition to being a place of worship and thanksgiving to God, it should also be a place where we can bring things like a broken marriage, our unsaved loved ones, sickness, anxiety, our cares. It's a place of pain and sacrifice and even, even death because we have to surrender our own will and sometimes kill our own desires so that we can be obedient to God. It's a place for us to bring our heart and allow God to turn it into a heart for him. Also, just like the altars from the Old Testament, our prayers can look very different from person to person, depending upon where we are in our lives. We saw in the picture, an altar can be a simple stone or it can be a grandiose, solid bronze platform. 
It's not about how simply or elegantly we say our prayers. What matters most is what we bring to them. Are we bringing sacrifice? Are we bringing surrender? Are we bringing honesty? Because sometimes I know I don't want to sacrifice and surrender. But I need to honestly bring that to God and ask him to change that in me. Are we bringing our heart so God can make our heart more like his? I want to close out today's message just by sharing a a story that I came upon a few weeks ago. The story is called The Cottage of Prayer, and it's about the spiritual awakening in the Hebrides Islands near Scotland that happened in around 1950. So the Hebrides are um, more than 100 islands off the northwest coast of Scotland, uh, one of which is Scotland's largest island, and the name of that island is Lewis and Harris, mainly because there's two main cities, one called Lewis and one called Harris on that island. In 1949, the population was about 25,000 people, so rather small. And it was filled with churches that had gone cold. Youth had left the church in droves, and the churches had just grown cold. Also on the island lived Peggy and Christine Smith, who were two sisters in their 80s. One was blind, the other was riddled with arthritis. They couldn't get to church, but they spent hours each day praying in their little cottage. During one of those prayer sessions, excuse me, iPad's freaking out here. (laughs) During one of those prayer sessions, Peggy had a vision. She saw the churches of the island packed with youth and a picture of an unknown minister speaking from the pulpit. She heard Isaiah 44.3, which says, For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. Peggy, shortly after that, sent for one of the parish ministers. His name was Mr. McSee. He had tried many outreaches and other events to try to spark something with the church and the youth with no success. Peggy asked him if he would consider holding prayer meetings two nights a week at the church. Since he had tried so many other things, he agreed and his church started holding prayer meetings. I'm not sure why, but from 10 p.m. to 4 a.m. two nights a week. I'm not sure why about the time. I didn't didn't mean I'm not sure why they held prayer meetings. The time, 10 p.m. to 4 a.m. After several months, one of the men at the prayer meeting started to read from Psalm 24, verses 3 to 5, and that says, "'Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord?' And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord. Then this young man said, it seems to me, he said to everyone, it seems to me so much humbug to be praying as we're praying, to be waiting as we're waiting, if we ourselves are not rightly related to God. Then he lifted up his eyes and he prayed, God, are my hands clean? Is my heart pure? And he dropped face down to the ground. And when I read that, I thought this is a man who's offering his heart to God. That night, people started meeting in groups out in the fields, in homes, everywhere, talking about the sense of God's presence that, they, that had descended on them. 
Days later, uh, Peg, at Peggy's request, Mr. McSee sent a letter to a minister on the mainland named Duncan Campbell. Peggy believed him to be the unnamed preacher in her vision. Duncan replied that he couldn't be there because there was a conference he had to attend on the mainland. And when Mr. McSee showed that reply to Peggy, Peggy said to him, Mr. McSee, that is what man is saying, but God has said something else. He will be here in a fortnight. Well, the conference was canceled, and Duncan came to the island for what he believed would just be a 10-day visit. He was taken to a church at 9 p.m. to give a message. Around 300 people came, and at 11 p.m., when he gave his benediction, a young man approached him and said, God is about to break through any moment. And the young man started praying, God, you made a promise to pour water on the thirsty and floods in the dry land, and you're not doing it. And he dropped to the floor and he prayed for five more minutes. When that was all over and they opened the doors of the church to leave, they were shocked to see 700 people gathered at the church waiting to get in at 11 o'clock at night. That particular church meeting went on until 4 a.m. Maybe that's why they were praying until 4 a.m. That literally just sparked in my head. And many people came to Christ, but that's not all. As they were leaving the church, they were told that another 300 people were crowded around the police station, and they asked Duncan to come there immediately. What just so happened that Peggy and Christine's cottage, where they had been praying the whole time, was right next door to the police station. That was just the start. Duncan Campbell spent the next two years giving messages all over the Hebrides. He's quoted to say this, quote, you see, in Lewis and in the Highland generally, they would no more believe that you were a Christian than they would believe that the devil is a Christian if you don't attend the prayer meetings. When a soul is born again, suddenly there's a created hunger to be among the praying people of God. Prayer meetings become crowded. You couldn't find a parish in Lewis today that hasn't five prayer meetings. It was stated in the midst of the movement There are more people attending the prayer meetings now than attended public worship on a communion Sunday. And I thought to myself, wow. Can we say the same? I know we can't, right? But what if we could? I remember back last year, I think it was sometime last year, I know Scott had started praying in the sanctuary every morning or at least several mornings a week. And it was early. I could have been there. I wasn't. I don't know how many people were there, but I'm guessing it was way lower than we have in this room right now or any given communion Sunday. So I first read that whole story a little over three weeks ago um, with no intention of just other than reading it, and it came rushing back when I started preparing this sermon, and I know it was a little long, and I appreciate you bearing with me. If you want to learn more about it, you let me know, and I can send you a link to the entire story. It's pretty amazing. I believe that Peggy and Christine Smith <clears throat> are two of the biggest living stones that I've ever heard of. Just like the people returning to rebuild the temple, just like they started by building the altar and using the altar, 
Peggy and Christine started everything at their own personal altar of prayer. So I want, to, I want you to ask yourself a question. It's a question that I've been forced to ask myself over the past week or two. And that is, how is my prayer life? I have to admit that I didn't like the honest answer I had to give myself. But you can't be a living stone helping to build God's kingdom without first building your altar of prayer where you can bring your whole heart to God. That is way more important to God than any building, including this building. That's what has to come first. Only then can we even hope to be living stones for God.